and then I have to follow that. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> so I actually, after that Dharma talk, I've been working on my talk for a while, a couple of weeks off and on, and, <laughs> and after that talk, I actually went back into the teacher's room and said, I'm throwing my talk away. And they were like, no, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not kidding. I'm throwing it away. And it was like, it just made no sense anymore. Um, I had planned to incorporate the seven factors of awakening. And after listening to the seven factors of unawakening, (laughs) I felt, well, maybe this is bad timing. So, <laughs> that's really what I did. <sighs> Larry, 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 Larry. Um, so, I mean, you know, you'll get the seven factors of awakening another time. It's a wonderful teaching. So then I had to figure out I needed the, well, let me get a little bit of background. Um, so my, my, um, my job was to write a talk on inspiration. And um, so I needed a new inspiration to write a talk on inspiration. And um, so I had to dig really deep last night. I mean, I've never really, you know, I'm kind of new at this, so to throw a talk away and have to give it in less than 24 hours was uh, nerve-wracking a little bit. Um, So here we are, and this is what I did, and I literally didn't take a word of the other one. Um, I lifted from another one, so some of you have heard another talk, and Thomas, you've heard it, um, so there'll be a little bit of repeat for some people, but um, I really dug in and said, what am I really inspired by? Like, what is my deepest inspiration? around this practice. And I just really went in and let go of all my preconceived thoughts. And so that's where this is coming from, what I'm inspired by, by this practice, and what has inspired me to this point in my life. And you'll get the connection between the two, I think. But one thing that I do know is that human life cannot exist without inspiration, period. It cannot exist. And I'm not talking about hope. I'm talking about inspiration. And so I looked up the difference between hope and inspiration. Hope, this is the definition. A feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Synonyms are aspiration, desire, wish, expectation. Now the definition of inspiration, the process of being mentally stimulated to do or feel something, especially to do something creative. The, the second definition is the drawing in of breath, inhalation. The synonyms are creativity, imagination, inventiveness. So hope 
is expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's almost the kind of stuff that we've been taught not to do, right? Wishing something from the outside that can happen for us. That's kind of how I interpreted that. And, you know, it really is a part of craving, it feels like. It leads towards craving. Inspiration, being mentally stimulated. This is something from the inside. And it can be externally stimulated, of course, but it is an internal movement, an act, a creative act internally. And it is, um, like I said, it can be sparked from something on the outside. And it's as primal as your breath. We cannot live without breath. And I dare say we cannot live without inspiration. We need to create. We are creative beings. We have to create something. I mean, in the largest sense of the word, of create. And we need to breathe. And you know, the root word, the root word, the Latin root word of inspire is inspire, something like that, which means to breathe. So inspiration is as fundamental as breathing. So I think when we say sometimes that people have lost hope, I think maybe now I'm thinking that they've lost inspiration. The ability to fill their own fire of their own creation. You know? There's this, there's, seems like there's something inside of us that just needs more, that is, that goes beyond craving. It's not a craving. It's at the root of our very existence, it seems. It is seeking to express something that I think that is already inside of us. It's a layer, something inside of us that is, that is yearning to be expressed. This inspiration, this breath. I think also there's a freedom that we're aching for, a sense of freedom. And I looked up the definition of freedom. The definition of freedom is the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Without hindrance or restraint. The synonym, self-determination. Kujijakulia. For those of you who know the seven principles. Self-determination. So in light of all of the injustices and oppressions that we face, racial, gender, gender expression, sexual preferences, abilities, all of the oppressions that we've been talking about and looking at that Larry so eloquently talked about last night, what is hindering and restraining us the most from our personal and collective freedom? And I think it is actually our minds. This is what's hindering us the most. That's what's restricting us the most. Yes, there's a lot of things in the world happening, no doubt. And it still is here is where our restrictions come from. So there's three things that are coming up for me, which is leading to my inspiration of this practice. One, is that we have to be able to know and uncover and tap into who we really are. 
who we really are, underneath the layers of doubt and the fake news that you're not worthy, okay, that you don't belong, that you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, and you're just not enough. Underneath that is where freedom lies, waiting for you to move the dust off of it. Because whoever told you any of those things, they're lying. It's not true. It's absolutely not true. Wherever we've heard it from, it's not true. Because at the core of all of us is this, what I'm calling the Buddha nature. At our very core, I believe, is this Buddha nature. Some people, you may call it Christ-like. You may call it from, from uh, Mohammed. You may use whatever words you use to call it. I, for the purposes of this talk, am calling it the Buddha nature. It's a quality of inner knowing that deeply knows love and compassion and wisdom. It's, it's, it's here. So that's one thing that's hindering us deeply knowing who we really, really are. The second thing is guidance. We need guidance. Life doesn't come with a manual, right? And so we're just fumbling our way through and doing the best that we can. Everybody's doing the best they can with what they know at the time. And oftentimes it's not good enough, it's not sufficient enough, but people are doing the best they can. And sometimes it's just not good enough, it feels. We need guidance along the way, some help. Some people can be very helpful along the way, and others are very devastating. We have some really, really terrible role models, you know? We spend our adult lives undoing a lot of the damage that happened all these years and just ill guidance. You know, I was looking up, um, the coaching business is like booming in the US. That's the business to get in. In February, this February, I read this article said, the US personal coaching business tops one billion and growing. And that market is expected to reach 1.34 billion by 2022 a 6.7% average yearly growth rate, which is huge. Because people are looking for guidance. That coaching business is huge. People are seeking. So we need guidance. So we need to know who we are, and we need guidance. And then the third thing is that we need this like-minded community. We need each other. We can't do it alone. We never do it alone. And those people who say they do it alone, it's not true. Nobody does it alone. We actually need each other. That is why we gather. Human beings have this natural tendency to gather. There's a reason for that. We come together to share, to protect, to listen, to commune. You know, there's a surge right now in intentional communities and co-housing and all of that. People want to create villages and tribes again. I think I've invited, been invited in the last six months to more women's circles than I have in my entire life. <laughs> and I've created two of those myself, honestly, right? It's like, we need to gather. 
there's this urge to be in community. So the three things that I just mentioned, knowing ourselves, that guidance, trusted guidance, and community, in our Buddha lingo, these three things are the three jewels. It's the three jewels that we take refuge in. The Buddha, our innate Buddha nature is who we really are. The Dharma, that trusted guidance that works. And the Sangha, the community. The three jewels. And I realize that that is what I actually am most inspired by in this practice. It works for me. I really, honestly, it moves me. I believe. I've seen it. And I know those three things and how important they are and how in this practice it manifests. The three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So looking at the Buddha, like I said, I believe that there's that Buddha nature wanting to express itself. And I'm talking about the Buddha as an archetype. There's the historical Buddha, so we could talk about that, but I'm, I'm taking it into the archetype of that nature, that Buddha nature that we all have. Because maybe, you know, you, the historical Buddha is okay, but it's not, you're not there, and that's fine. But I am talking about that archetypal quality, that internal freedom that's not dependent on externalities. Because we know we can't control that. I mean, we do our best, we do a lot in the world, but we really can't control the externalities. And what I'm talking about is something that no external conditions has to be present in order for us to experience this deep inner humanity. It's already there. The Dharma, the need for guidance, the teachings of the Buddha of seeing life just as it is, showing us the middle path that leads to the end of suffering. These set of teachings, it's just, it's, it, they're, they're priceless, honestly. And, you know, the Buddha always said, don't do what I say. Find out yourself. Check it out yourself. Does it work? Does it work for you? Ah, thank you. Does it work for you? And so that is what the Dharma is. It's not a prescription of, you know, because I said. Check it out. The Dharma. And then the Sangha. So the Sangha was originally referred to, when they said the word the Sangha, to the ordained nuns, the, what were called the bukinis, and the monks, the bhikkhus, who followed the path of the Buddha. Okay, that's what the original Sangha, and on a higher level, it refers to all those people past and present who have followed the path to fully awaken. Now, we recognize the Sangha as just us, right? Ordinary human beings following the Buddha's way, who can become fully awakened beings, we believe in our lifetime. The Sangha is that needed support to follow this path. 
So I want to talk about what has been my true inspiration in this practice, that which ignites the flame inside of me, and that I have found to be true, and that is these three jewels. Because I have had the blessing, the honor, the good fortune, to know someone for 50 years of my life who is not a fully awakened person. I don't know that I've ever met a fully awakened person, present company excluded. (laughs) Um, But I had the pleasure of 50 years of benefiting and watching this trajectory of this, this person's life. And it's as close as I know as someone who I feel is a real bodhisattva. And that person is my brother Larry Mason that I mentioned yesterday. And I'm going to talk a little bit about him and why I think that. See what you think. Larry is, um, was, he's passed away, seven years older than me. And The last 15 or so years of his life were extraordinary. I saw him uncovering his Buddha nature day by day, month by month, and just exquisite. He is absolutely reason why I am following this path. I'm taking the next step that he would have taken had he lived. So because of him, I believe in the Buddha nature that is within us. I believe it's within me. I believe it's within you. And no matter how hard life is in all the external circumstances, and that spectrum that Larry gave us last night from, from, what was it, from despair to collective joy, all the many steps, all of that is there. And I believe that somewhere in that spectrum lies our Buddha nature. It's somewhere in that spectrum. What we have to do is just, like Larry said, turn towards it. Turn towards it. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background of my life and why and how I was inspired. So I happen to be born in a very, very special family. I thought it was a special and very interesting family. Um, We actually really loved each other a lot, like a lot, a lot. And um, it's interesting because when I talk about it, I didn't used to talk about my family at all because it was so good. And people's experiences were so different. I found as I got older, right, you start talking to people and their families are not so good. And it shut me down. It shut me up because I felt that, you know, it just felt odd to talk about it. And um, so I'm going to ask you to step into mudita, to step into mudita because I'm going to talk about it. And it was good. Um... There was this crazy, wonderful love that we shared. Four kids. 
I'm the youngest. Uh, two boys were the oldest, and my sister above me and me. And along with this crazy, wonderful, and my mom, and my, our dad left, he, you know, he left the picture, so I don't really include him in the picture. Um, so, but my mother was just phenomenal. And along with this crazy, wonderful love that we were born into, we had this really crazy, rare kidney disease called Alport syndrome that I don't know if there's any doctors in the house, but it's a really rare disease. I see your brother shaking his head. That disease impacted four generations of my family on the matrilineal line. So I mentioned last night that Larry was one of the first people on dialysis, one of the first dialysis patients in the U.S., period. He, his kidneys failed in 19, around 1970. He was here at Cal, an undergrad, just in the prime of his life, and his kidneys failed. And we didn't know about the dialysis machine, and we heard about it. It was in San Francisco, and he was dying in the hospital at Alta Bates in Berkeley, and we rushed him over there and saved his life. And the machine was also very new at the time. And you had to be on for like hours, something like eight hours a day, four days a week. I mean, it was really a lot. And it pulled, and he went through years and years of a lot, of being really a guinea pig for, for the machine, the dialysis machine, as, as well as um, two transplants that didn't last. You know, they, all the meds for transplants then were just didn't work as well as they do now. So it was a lot that he went through. And he was a little bitty guy, right? So he just got littler and littler. And, um, and he was sick all the time and became disabled. And so, um, so park that. Simultaneously, then, um, my mom, who also died of, renal failure. Um, she was on dialysis for quite a few years herself before she passed away. Amazing, amazing, amazing. I mean, she loved us. Everybody thought they were the most special, <laughs> and we all were. You know, it wasn't that pitying people. We were just, just a love nest. And um, so that's, that's how I grew up. She was this tiny little person also. We get our tininess from her. One of these tiny, take no crap. <laughs> All right? Like for real. Activist with a huge heart. We called her Kettle. So Kettle instructed us our whole lives to stand up for the voiceless, to be an activist. She said, don't even come home. If, there's, if somebody has been treated unjustly, and you just walk by, don't even come home. You get involved. You stop injustice. And we got that message seriously, right? So I come by way of, very honestly, um, where that was instilled in each and every one of us. And we were also taught to be strong, loving, and resilient. Um, yeah, really, she really stressed love and to love people. 
So one of the things that she said, I, I, I had to put this in her favorite song, which was really her theme song. I call it her theme song, our house theme song. It was a song called God Bless the Child, by, written by Billie Holiday. Y'all know that song? Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. For the Bible says, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got their own, that's got their own. Y'all know that? Yeah. That song was played at my house all the time. She loved the Lou Rawls version of it. And it was telling us, it wasn't just, you know, nothing was random in my house. She, it was telling us to make sure that we get it together, right? God bless the child that's got their own. It is up to you to create your life. It is up to you to develop what you need to create your life. You know, we have a lot, but you've got to take it from here. And so I took that very seriously because she also stated it all the time about, you know, standing up, having your own. Everybody interpreted that song in their own ways. So going back to Larry and how he, I think, this weaves into him and how I think made him who he is as well as me. I was inspired by him from a very, very early age. Like I said, he was the oldest, I was the youngest, and I was like this pet project of his, I think. And he taught me so much. He taught me so much. Um, at the age of 14, he had me reading The Communist Manifesto <laughs> by Marx and Engels. Serious business. I was reading the, I would think I was only 14 year old, reading the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> he handed me books that I read and I just kept up with him. Whatever he was doing, that's what I was doing. Um, so he was extremely active. Like when he came to Cal in the 70s, of course, he was involved in the, in the movement here and the ethnic studies department was developing and the black studies and Latino studies and Asian studies. He was a part of all of that. Um, and then his kidneys went out. So he went from, his trajectory was from, he was a black nationalist, and then he went to, then he was a communist, and then he was a socialist, and then he was a spiritualist. And I'm so happy that he lived that long to get to those places. And I read the books along the way, right? So what I want to tell you about his extraordinary life in those last few years is his spirituality and how it impacted me. He was so wise with his illness. Like, like nothing probably you've hardly ever seen. He started to meditate. He learned meditation. And he meditated constantly. People would look at him because I said he was tiny. He walked with a wobble when he, you know, when it came, I mean, he, was, he had a lot of stuff going on with his body. And people would feel sorry for him. And he would always say, don't feel sorry for me. You know, I'm good. This is my path. This is my path. 
And it's a good path. Life is good. And so people would look at him and want to feel sorry. And he was like, no, 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 no. Life is good. Life is good. Everyone has something. Everyone has a path, and this is my path. He would even explain to me things like when you see, I used to live in New York, and uh, in New York you'd see people on scooters with no legs, you know, and kind of move. It was just always so hard um, with looking for money. And he would say things like, even the person with no legs, Kanda, is okay. It wasn't a lack of compassion. He was talking about life. This is life. That this, too, is life. This is how it shows up. And he actually was extremely compassionate. But I learned so much from him about this, too, is life. This, too, is life. He managed to liberate his mind from his body, the suffering of his body. And as his body became weaker over the years, he actually became wiser. He let go. He let go. He meditated more and more, and he let go of this body that wasn't working because his mind and his heart were amazing. So he spent his time constantly reading. All he did was read. He had just books. He was reading mainly Buddhist texts that I started to inherit. That's when I started seeing what was happening. Other Eastern religions, and he was really into Ken Wilbur as well. Through all of that illness, he went to law school at, in Berkeley, and he became a lawyer, passed the bar. He became an economist. He became a philosopher. He just kept going to school. And he spent most of his time just giving advice to people. He was like the guru. Everybody went in to talk to Larry. And he had so much wisdom because he just, his life was so special that way. And no matter what side of, what he loved, two things he loved in life was Miles Davis and debating, right? He loved a good conversation. And no matter what side of the bait I was on with him, we would be talking about something, he would jump to the other side. And he would talk from that other side just as firmly as the side. And it was like, I know he didn't believe that. But he, what he was doing was showing me, don't hang on to fixed views. There's so many sides to everything. He can get on any side and, and really understand that there's so much more than your views. So I watched his evolution of his life. And before I ever heard the word equanimity, he held that. That's that's why I understand it. That's why I really know it in action. Equanimity, mudita, I said yesterday. Loving-kindness, compassion. Right view from the Eightfold Path, really seeing life just as it is. And he spoke a lot of emptiness, that how this body is just a body. It's just a body, but I'm okay. 
and how none of us are really our bodies and that this phenomena, this is in, that all phenomena is inherently empty. These are the kinds of conversations that I had with him all the time. It was never, hey, how you doing, hello, anything. It was always this deep conversation. And remember, this is a black man born in 1948, right, with all that that came with. And I really tried to keep up with him and to keep up with him intellectually and internalize the lessons that I was getting. After his kidneys failed, my brother Dwayne, his kidneys failed too. He went on dialysis, then my mom, she went on dialysis, then my niece, she went on dialysis. And I am actually the only one in four generations whose kidneys have not failed in my family. The only one. And Larry would always tell me, that's not your path. You fly. Don't feel guilty. You fly. It's not your path. So my family really learned how to turn towards suffering and to continue to grow and to love through it all and not to shut our hearts down. So I know that Buddha nature exists. I've seen it. I've seen it. No matter how difficult things are, and things are difficult, all of us have our dukkha. I've seen someone with so much dukkha shine through with his Buddha nature. So I know it's possible, and that's why I am doing this path. My brother Larry found liberation in his dying process. And he was still, to the bitter end, an anti-capitalist. <laughs> He's so crazy. He actually told us, he said, as he was dying, he was in the hospital, and he said, listen, when I die, just leave me here. Don't spend any money in this commercialized death industry. <laughs> they will have to do something with my body. Just walk away, Con. just walk away. <laughs> It was like, dude, can you just stop at some place? <laughs> oh my God, it never stopped. And literally what we did on, for, his, for his celebration of his life is, it was the day, two days or some after that, um, Michael Moore's film came out at the Grand Lake Theater, one of his big films, I forget which one it was, but it was the one we were all anticipating back then. And that's what we did. Everybody gathered, just, we had a stream of people and we went to see Michael Moore. And that was celebrating Larry's so appropriately. So what did I learn from all of this, right? I learned a lot about dukkha. I also learned how mental suffering is a result of your views. And your relationship to dukkha matters. Your relationship to dukkha matters. You have a choice. He never viewed himself as a victim. Other people did, but he never did. So I learned that. 
woman Vivian Green says, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning how to dance in the rain. That's what he did. He danced in the rain. I also learned it doesn't matter what's happening. It's how we relate to what's happening. There's always going to be something, but how do we relate to it is what really matters. He was so accepting of his reality and all reality. And this, too, is life. I learned that. And this, too, is life. And to accept that which seems unfair, right? It's just life showing up, y'all. It's life showing up. He never thought in terms of fairness and unfairness. He would throw those words away. And yet he worked for injustice his entire life. He was the poorest lawyer you ever met, you know? (laughs) He just did service. It was Donna. He didn't use that word, but it was Donna. He used his legal services for people who needed it, and they never paid him, and that's okay. He suffered a lot physically, and I'm sure at times he suffered mentally, but basically he was tapped into the emptiness of all phenomena. He tapped into that. and into impermanence. I was in a retreat just recently with Eugene Cash, and he said, all of Dharma is letting go. That's all it is, is letting go. And I really let, learned how to let go on so many levels. And with a broken heart, it wasn't easy. And Larry really tried to show me how to let go of him. Right? He said, we are all simultaneously living and dying, Khan. Let's call me Khan. We're all simultaneously living and dying. It's all happening at the same time. So the three character what was called the three characteristics of existence, which is dukkha, right? Which we know about dukkha now, impermanence and the empty nature of all conditioned phenomena, I was actually learning that and witnessing it, the lived experience of it. And one March, I sat the month of March in this room, I don't know, a few years after Dwayne, Larry, Kettle, everybody had passed on, and I was in this room sitting the month of March and that's when I actually got it. I, it was one of those breakthrough moments, you know, where you're just like sobbing and realization and just couldn't move. I'm in this room and I really had that moment when I understood the dance of dukkha, impermanence, and this inherent emptiness, this what they call non-self. It came so crystal clear to me. And then, as the last one of the Mason tribe, I thought, huh, my family was here to teach me 
this dance. That's why I came through this family, to learn this. It was loud and clear. And so, because so much of my life was spent in hospitals, so, you know, you can imagine it was constant between Larry and Lorraine and my mother, it was just constant, me and my sister, and then my sister's kidneys went out. Um, At an early age, I learned a lot about sickness and death. Not much about old age, because nobody actually got there, but a lot about sickness and death and how difficult and unavoidable it is. It was like, I say it's like this joke that I got. It's like, okay, I got good news, I got bad news, and I got good news. The good news is that you're going to be born into this wonderful, loving family. The bad news, it's going to be short. And then the good news, the ultimate good news, is you'll have access to everything you need to understand it and to get through it. That's what it feels like my life has been. Our teacher and colleague and friend Sylvia Bornstein says, it's not what I chose, but it's what I got. Right? Would I have chosen differently? Probably. So I learned that this small little black kid from San Bernardino, California, had these Buddha-like qualities. In the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this Southern California desert, he had these Buddha-like qualities. So I believe it's possible to wake up. I really do, inside myself, I believe that. So, this was supposed to be an inspiring talk. I hope you all are inspired. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, this is life, right? This, is, this too is life. I'm inspired by all this. This was what inspired me, this life that I have has inspired me to to be who I am, to get what I feel like I'm getting, and to teach what I feel like I need to pass on. Right? Like the real lived experience. And I have a long ways to go, but there's something that I got, and I was inspired by it. My sister, Smiley, is her name. Um, We live together, and it's awesome. It's just the two of us and dogs. We have two dogs. And I told you, her kidneys failed, I don't know, six, seven years ago. She was on dialysis. She just recently got a kidney a year ago. And um, it's going really well. And But recently she had this bout of sepsis, which was like, whoa. And it was intense. Sepsis where, you know, your blood is like... It's, it was very frightening and scary, and um, I happened to be in L.A., and I got the call, and I had to run home and drive up the 5 freeway, freaking out. Um, but she got through it, and um, so she's good. You know, we were afraid that her kidney would be jeopardized, but it didn't all as well. And last month, right, I don't know, a few weeks after that, she had her 65th birthday in May. And so uh, we were driving down the... 580 freeway, and I was taking her to lunch at Chez Ponis, 
And um, I was talking to her about that experience and where she's at right now. And she said, she said, you know, Khan, I never, I've never feared death. And this is verbatim. I actually turned on my iPhone. She said, I never, I've never feared death. But now I don't fear life. That she said, I, and I feared life because it was so unknown. I knew my kidneys were going to fail and all that comes with it. I feared not knowing when, but I didn't fear death. But now, from whatever happened in that hospital, I don't fear life, fear life anymore. I feel free at 65. And that's where she is right now. So this exposure to old age, sickness, death, is the very experiences that awakened the Buddha, Siddhartha, that led him to his path of enlightenment, to end suffering. So I'm inspired by the three jewels and the Buddha, the Dharma, that guidance, all the stuff that I just talked about, this impermanence, the the knowing that what rises is going to pass. We can count on impermanence, right? We can, dukkha is a part of what life is. All these lessons, the emptiness, the inherent emptiness of all phenomena, of all conditioned phenomena. The Buddha, the Dharma, and now the Sangha. Oh my, the Sangha, the Sangha. When I look at my life, I was inspired by my family Sangha. I've always managed to create jobs where I'm doing something that's collaborative. And I noticed that, that there's, there's this, I have this need for collaboration. And I was at one point in my life a film producer. And films take a lot of people to make happen, all those credits, right? And as the producer, I get to be in the middle of knowing and coordinating who's doing what and really having the benefit of deep collaboration with people who know what they're doing, who are doing amazing jobs. I loved it. I worked in theater as a production stage manager. I loved it. The whole, what it takes to make a, from a script to a production. My latest endeavor, Impact Hub Oakland, those of some of you may know about it, is this co-working community in Oakland. I created a 16,000 square foot collaboratory that I'm just now actually looking at and realizing I just did the same thing. I never looked at it like that before. That I created this space where activists and entrepreneurs gather and collaborate. And my best times are when I'm on the floor asking what are people doing and getting involved in that. Unfortunately, Larry Mason never saw it. He would have loved it. And now we're all a part of this greater POC Sangha. And I'm so inspired by you. I'm so inspired by yesterday and what we've created over these 20 years. And you're now a part of it if you weren't before. I mean, just look at yourselves.
It's incredible. And each of us, with our own lives, our joys and our sorrows, And yet, we came here to be inspired by the capacity of our hearts to awaken and to find freedom. Albert Camus, who is a French philosopher, said, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Right? Inspiration is the feeling of freedom and joy from realizing that who we really are is beyond the body and all of our limiting beliefs. The Buddha, they say in his dying last words, he said, because he didn't leave an heir, he left it to the Sangha. And he said, be a light unto yourself. To me, that translates into, God bless the child that's got their own. I'm going to end with this wonderful Alice Walker genius moment the many that she has. Alice. That though the heart is breaking, happiness can exist in a moment also. And because the moment in which we live is all the time there really is, we can keep going. It may be true and often is that every person we hold dear is taken away from us. Still, From moment to moment, we watch our beans and watermelons grow. We plant, we hoe, we harvest, we share with our neighbors. And life inexhaustible goes on, and we do too, carrying our wounds and our medicines as we go. Ours is an amazing and spectacular journey. It is so remarkable. One can only be thankful for it, bizarre as that may sound. Perhaps our planet is for learning to appreciate the extraordinary wonder of life that surrounds even our suffering. And to say yes, if through the thickest of tears. May you be inspired by the Buddha and your ability to awaken. May you be inspired by the Dharma and the wisdom and compassion it has to offer to come to the end of suffering. And may you be inspired by the Sangha, our beloved community, community realizing itself into being. This is the inspiration that drives me, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I'd like for us now to take refuge.
with your yellow sheets of paper. We're going to take refuge. Again, we did that coming in. We did it yesterday. And one more time. So we're going to do the homage three times and then all in in Pali. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa Buddham saranam gachami, Dhamman saranam gachami, Sangam saranam gachami, Dutiyampi Buddham saranam gachami, Dutiyampi Dhamman saranam gachami, Dutiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Daman Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.